This is the Cato Daily Podcast for Monday, March 28, 2016. I'm Caleb Brown. In an election year where ideology doesn't seem to matter that much, what does it actually mean to elect someone who will just get things done? Jason Brennan is a professor at Georgetown University and author of a new guide to political philosophy for libertarianism.org. We spoke in February. You know, there's this joke that when we have a problem, the thought is something needs to be done. This is something, so let's do it. Um, and for years and years, I mean, really for 60 years, political scientists have been studying how voters think. And we find that in general, voters are not particularly ideological. Most of them don't have anything like a coherent political philosophy or idea. Um, and in this election, it seems to be even worse than normal. It almost seems like what's going on is that people are emoting. And there's this really popular view in political science called the expressive theory of voting, which says that voters vote in order to express their fidelity to certain ideas or worldviews. And what seems to be going on this time is that um, certain people on the right who you know, maybe working class white people who feel that they haven't gotten the same gains as everybody else over the last 20 years, they're attracted to Trump and they feel that this is sort of their way of showing their frustration. And then maybe upper middle class white people feel that things are just in some way unfair and they're attracted to a person who is going to fix that. But they're, for the most part, pretty light on explaining what their policies are, why they're going to work. Um, and it seems that the voters don't particularly care about that. Why? Well, I always like to think that, uh, you know, think of what voting is. Like if you go to a restaurant and you pick something off the menu, then you get stuck with whatever you pick. And so you're punished for making bad choices and you're rewarded for making good choices. If I decide to eat um, six bags of Cadbury mini eggs every day, which I would love to do, all things considered, maybe not all things considered, I'd like to do it if I could, I might get diabetes and get sick and so I don't do it. But when it comes to voting, your vote is just one out of many. The probability that your vote will break a tie in any major election is vanishingly small. It's on the order of you winning Powerball, perhaps even on the order of you winning Powerball multiple times in a row. And voters, it appears, know this. They're aware that their votes don't really matter. And so they treat them as these throwaway things. They're ways to sort of get a warm glow or to show that they hate certain people or like other people or want to be identified a certain way. Um, so it doesn't make sense for them to invest time in gathering information or to process that information in a scientific way because the cost basically of acquiring information and thinking about it rationally exceed the benefits of using it simply because their votes don't really matter. This idea that we need to get past how we think about things and our little arguments about ideology and that sort of thing, that goes back to at least, at least in American politics, at least Woodrow Wilson. Hmm. Yeah, you do see a lot of uh, a lot of people saying, "Well, we just need to be kind of technocratic, and what we're going to do is ask the experts to kind of tell us what to do, and we're just going to do what works." And there's something to be said for that. I think um, there is a point to saying that sometimes we need to pay more attention to what experts know and not be so into our own opinions. But the problem with saying we should just do what works is that what counts as working is one of the very things in dispute. So I look at what's happened in the world in the last 15 years and I see that most people around the world are getting richer and the extreme poor are much richer now than they were 15 years ago and I think that that's working. Um, some of my colleagues might look at what's happened in the past 15 years and think that the gap between, say, the top 0.01% of income earners in the world and the top 1% of income earners in the world has gotten bigger and they think that the global system is failing. Um, and here the dispute isn't about thinking about economics or poli-sci, it's about fundamental values. You talk about why political philosophy needs political economy in the book that you've put together for libertarianism.org. Why is that? So uh, 
how do, how do I think about it? If you want to ask the following question, what would a perfect society look like if everyone were morally perfect? You know, that's a perfect, that's a fine question to ask. I've written a book on that question myself at one point. But uh, whatever the answers to that question, like what institutions would be best if only we were perfectly virtuous, is probably a different answer than to the, you're probably going to get a different answer to that question than the question of what institutions should we live under with real people who are corruptible, who's, who can be incentivized to do the wrong thing, and when, whose motives depend apart upon the incentives that they face. Uh, so sometimes political philosophers have a tendency to just do everything from the armchair and they make recommendations about what institutions are best, which if you combine with real world people, you get disaster. So just an example, when I was a graduate student, I was taking a class, it was a co-convening class with some law students, and one of the law students said, this goal of social justice is so important that if it takes a KGB to make it work, so be it. We just need to make sure the right people run the KGB. And I was shocked by that because in the real world, there's no such thing as making sure the right people run the KGB. If we create a KGB, the people who run it are going to have ends of their own and they might use that power against our children rather than for them. Related to that, um, the FBI has asked Apple to help it crack into one iPhone. And this is the r refrain I hear all the time on the news, which is it's just one iPhone. But of course, the, the argument is it's bigger than that. It's, it's about compelling someone to break their own security. But uh, you have a, a take on this related to what rights are and how we ought to think about rights when it comes to things like this. Yeah, that's right. This is a good sort of philosophical issue about the nature of rights. So they're basically arguing we care about rights and that's why we need to be allowed to break into an iPhone. And the NSA is saying the same thing. We care about rights and that's why we should be allowed to spy on people. And their argument is effectively we're going to try to minimize total numbers of rights violations. And in order to do that, what we have to do is violate people's rights ourselves. Um, so it's not that they don't care about rights, but arguably they don't care about rights the right way. So there's this theory in philosophy that hardly anyone accepts, but it's a good kind of theory to think about. It's called utilitarianism, which says what we ought to do when we're picking institutions or rules is look for those things that maximize overall happiness and reduce overall suffering. Sounds plausible. That's what morality is about. But the problem with that theory is that it licenses you to harm some people greatly as long as you benefit other people a lot. So a nice kind of counterexample to utilitarianism comes in the short story, The Ones Who Walk Away from Omelas, which has you imagine this society that seems beautiful and perfect and everyone is healthy and happy, except there's one small child who's kept in a closet where she's tortured and beaten and starved. And then as part of your education growing up in this society, maybe around sixth grade, you're brought to see the child. And the reason it's called the ones who walk away from Omelas is that every night some people choose to just leave the city. And at the end of the story, you understand why. Because even though it has a lower crime rate than the US, even though it has other, it's in many ways better than other societies, it's fundamentally unjust because it's exploiting one person to benefit others. So what are rights? What are they important for? Fundamentally, what rights are are constraints upon our actions. They're these trump cards, as uh, Ronald Dworkin would say, that we hold up into society and say, you may not do this to me, even though doing it would maximize social utility. So the libertarian uh, philosopher Robert Nozick, who's also a professor at Harvard, wrote a very famous book called Anarchy, State, and Utopia, says, what rights are are side constraints. And a society can fail to, can take 
can care about rights but fail to take them seriously if it holds what he calls a utilitarianism of rights, where they think what our goal is to do is to minimize total rights violations, so we'll feel free to violate rights whenever doing so will lead to slightly fewer rights violations. And that's basically what the NSA and FBI are trying to do. So, And rights, if you treat that as an institution, that's an institution that has real people involved, and that's why we have them. Right. And, and it, it's kind of a funny thing to say, but uh, there's almost like a consequentialist argument for not caring about consequences here. And this is an argument you see made many, many times throughout history, which is that if you want to maximize utility, if you want to have a society in which people are, are happy and healthy and so on, um, what you might need to do is have constraints that forbid individual actors from trying to maximize utility. I mean, if that seems weird, you can think about the game of baseball. Uh, so the point of the, of the game baseball is to have fun, right? That's what it's for, is to have safe fun, perhaps. But the game wouldn't work if individual umpires were making calls on the basis of what would maximize fun. Like if they said, oh, give this guy a fourth strike because that would be more fun this time. If they started doing that, the game would just break down and you wouldn't actually have any fun with the game. Well, that's sort of a metaphor, but rights and a lot of other institutions are like that. It's when we forbear from doing things to each other, when our goal is to maximize utility, that actually the forbearance itself is the thing that makes for a peaceful, harmonious, prosperous society. The right to property, the eminent domain, for example, these are credible claims that uh, the government should follow through on so that uh, we can have some uh, trust that the things we buy, we get to keep. Yeah, that's right. Uh, maybe one way of thinking about this too is if the government were staffed by omnibenevolent angels, then the kind of power that you'd want to entrust to them might be different from the kind of power you want to entrust to them given that they are staffed by real people, my neighbors. You know, a lot of my neighbors are diplomats and others and bureaucrats. Uh, they're staffed by real people. So uh, you might be willing to give the leaders the power to make exceptions to the rules if you could just trust that they would only do it the right way every single time. Because we all kind of recognize sometimes the rules break down. But when you give that power to real people, that's pretty dangerous. And one of the reasons it's dangerous is because the power to do good is also the power to do evil. The power to, say, regulate the economy for the public good is also the same thing as the power to distribute favors to favored corporations that have lobbied you. Um, the power to redistribute money to poor people who might need it is also the same thing to redistribute money to rich people who happen to vote your way. Discretion. Yes, that's right. So discretion is a scary thing when you give it to real people, even though it might not be a scary thing when you give it to angels. And unfortunately, a lot of people tend, when they think about government, um, they're sort of imagining a unicorn that's loving and caring and only do the right thing. They're not imagining the actual sorts of people that you and I see on the streets and live with and shop with. Jason Brennan is author of Political Philosophy and Introduction, available at libertarianism.org. Subscribe to this podcast at iTunes, Google Play, and with Cato's iOS app. And follow us on Twitter at Cato Podcast.